Good afternoon, and thanks for tuning in to the Ball Talk Pod with Evan Kinter and Jaden Jones. We have a great show for you all today as we welcome two-time NBA champion and three-time three-point contest champion Craig Hodges on our show. Craig, thanks for joining us. Thank you, man. Appreciate it, and God bless to you and your audience. Thanks again, Craig. Uh, Craig played for the Clippers, the Bucks. Suns and the Bulls in his 10 NBA seasons, leading the league in three-point field goal percentage three times. As I said earlier, he won the three-point contest championship at All-Star Weekend three times, a feat only he and Larry Bird have done. But also, he won two NBA championships with the Chicago Bulls in 1991 and 1992. Our first topic of the day is three-point shooting and what it has done for the NBA over the last several years. Craig, you were a player who loved to shoot three-pointers as it was a focal point of your game. This was not as common as it is today as now the game has transitioned to a pace and space league as most teams highly rely on an up-tempo offense and three-point shots. You have seen every era of this league from when you were a player in the 80s and the early 90s. You saw a lot of isolation basketball and more of an overall slower-paced game. Then you were an assistant with the Los Angeles Lakers in the 2000s where the game turned into a more team-oriented approach, but still a high reliance on isolation basketball. And then you saw what has happened recently with the outbreak of three-point shooting as you were interim head coach of the Westchester Knicks in the 2014-15 season. Can you tell us your thoughts on the new style of play that was really brought in by the Golden State Warriors? I think you know with the with the way the game is is uh, transitioned to three point shooting. I think it's made it a uh, it's, it's an exciting game. Uh, basketball purists may not love it because you have seven foot guys shooting three pointers now and that kind of thing. But you know the analytical the analytics parts of the game just understood that if you can make you know a, a certain percentage of your threes, why not shoot those instead of shooting twos? And I think a lot of teams have bought into it, and, and now you're seeing the game uh, really in the hands of smaller people, actually, when you think about Steph Curry being perhaps the best player in the league because he can carry he can carry his range out to three-point land. You know, the game has changed uh, to a point where teams are looking to, to put up as many as they can. You know, I heard Kareem the other day on an interview say how and when they won their first championship, I think they won when they first won the league, it first uh, adopted the three-pointer. They took like 90, and I think last year Golden State took well over almost almost 2,000 of them. So yeah. it's just a it's a transition in the way the game is being played now, and it's uh, exciting for fans. Craig, are you still on? Yep, I'm still here. Okay. Can you hear me? Yep, I got you. Well, okay. Me personally, I have mixed emotions on the new brand of basketball. First off, <laughs> I think. It is good for the NBA and its fans as it gives viewers a more exciting game and it also gets people talking. Uh, media members like myself really like talking about it. But with right. high-scoring games, it really gets interesting and teams have to change entire defensive strategies and principles. So a lot goes into this guarding the three-point line. But the downside of this, in my opinion, is the development of young basketball players. As it used to be taught, younger players would shoot from inside and keep a nice form so that when they were older and could shoot the longer distance shots, it would be more consistent and they would have better form. 
But now, even five and six year olds want to try and attempt three pointers. I'm yeah. a upward basketball coach, and I coach second and third grade, and all all the, they want to shoot is three pointers. So it's really a struggle. <laughs> and they, and I, you know, and, and that's the part you know where the celebrity part of the game and the you know the superstars who are able to you know when you think of Steph and, and how much light is put on him from shooting the ball those distances, it's not surprising that young folks want to be able to shoot the ball at distances. But it's all it's all about fundamentals. I'm a high school coach, similar to you being a uh, a younger level coach. I think it's, it's imperative on us who are coaches to implement the fundamentals of the game, starting from the basket out to three-point land, and, and realizing that, you know, scoring the basketball is scoring the basketball. So you have to be able to make your layups. You have to be able to shoot. Uh, that in-between 15-foot shot, I think it's just imperative that we who are teachers of the game not lose sight of the fact that the game is bigger than just three-point shooting. A lot of coaches look at it like a mid-range jumper is a low-percentage shot, but in my opinion, it's whatever goes in is good. They say it, they try and take away from mid-range. but Absolutely, and, that, and that's, that's critical. You know, when you stop and you think, I, I tell I tell players all the time it's about making positive plays. Now, if you're at two point and you have a wide open shot, you have to take that shot. And I think yeah. now nowadays uh, people are looking into being stars, and I think that's that's a part of the game that that is kind of uh, disheartening to me. Is that you know if you can shoot, that's fine, but at the same time you have some players who are slashers, and they that, I don't think if you're a driver to the basket that you should so much be concerned about just being able to knock down a three and nine and cut off your slashing opportunity. So it has to be a, a balanced approach, and I think the balanced approach comes from the fundamentals that we train young people with early so that they realize the impact in the game is actually making plays and making sure that every play that you make is a positive one. A lot of it, I think, is because if you watch like a big game with the Warriors, you'll hear Stephen Curry, and they'll say the announcers will say, "Kids, this is the player you need to be watching to. He's a shorter guy, and he still is able to make a big impact and possibly the best player in the league because he works on his shot all the time." So that immediately wants the little kids to want to work on that stuff, but they don't realize that Steph Curry had to master the tiny fundamentals before learning how to do the really big stuff, the flashy stuff. So I think that really needs to be installed in the younger generation's head because they can't get there unless they do the minor things first. I mean, I'm sure Steph Curry will be the first one to tell you that. Absolutely. Yeah, and, you know, you look at Steph's game, it's well-rounded. You know, sometimes sometimes he's ready to shoot the jump shot, and if you roll out on him on his jump shot, he'll put the ball on the floor and go to the basket and lay it up over big. So he's not afraid to he's not afraid of contact, and I think that's part of what the game has to be taught about is that it's bigger than just being able to just shoot uh, jump shots from a distance. It's about being able to play basketball in a proper way and understanding what attributes you have and what you can work on to become better. And and I think so many times uh, we spend so much time on what we do well and not the um, our you know our weaknesses. And I think we have to. Continue continue to learn our weaknesses so that they can become part of our strengths as, as far as being a complete and total player of the game of basketball. Yeah, I totally agree on that. I tell my players all the time, you can't be one-dimensional. You have to have a full array of talent and skill set. 
So you can't just be able to do one thing right. You have to do everything, every single thing good. It's okay if you have one thing better than another thing because most players do have that. Just like you, you were a phenomenal three-point shooter, and that's what people rem remember you by. But I'm sure you had, you worked on everything else, and just the three-pointing, three-point shooting really stood out. You know, and that's the one thing I tell people all the time that you know a lot of, a lot of what I did in the game, people just uh, focused the light on me shooting three-point shots and winning three-point contests. But I always emphasize the fact that the great coaches that I had. You know, I started with Texas. You know, Steve Fisher was my high school coach who's a, who just retired from San Diego State. Coach Kawhi Leonard coached the Fab Five. So I was under his tutelage for three years and, and understanding in high school how important it was to make basketball plays offensively and defensively. And, you know, my range increased. And I was blessed not to have a three-point line until I got to the NBA. So a lot of me being able to shoot the ball from distances, it was without a line in that when it came to the line, that wasn't a big adjustment. So I think in terms of us being able to make sure we impress upon the minds of young basketball players and, and even players who are in the pros is that carry the threat that's available. So if I'm at two point and I can penetrate off the dribble, even from that point and get to the basket, let's get to the basket because the straight line principle never changes that if I have a straight line to the basket, I should take that. As you said, you uh, we're under some really great head coaches, and one of the one of the best head coaches you ever played under was Phil Jackson. He was your Absolutely. former coach with the Chicago Bulls, and also a person you helped coach with when you were an assistant with the Lakers. Uh, they the Knicks let go of him as president of basketball operations for the New York uh, this off season. Can you give our listeners right. your thoughts on this and what you think of Phil? Well, you know, first of all, to me, Phil is one, as far as coaches that I've been around, and, and when I, you know, not to not to take up time, but when I came into the league, Paul Silas was my first coach. My second coach was Jimmy Lynham. My third coach was Don Nelson. My fourth coach was Cotton Fitzsimmons. Then I had Doug Collins. Then I had Phil Jackson. So I've had a great array of coaches, and not to mention that Tex Winter was my college coach for four years, and then I got a chance to join him again with the Bulls and again with the Lakers when we won championships as coaches. So for me, I've had great coaches, but Phil, to me, has been perhaps the greatest manager of people and understanding what it is that um, the human factor and all of it, that everyone has what has their, their strengths and their weaknesses, and Phil, Phil's been able to put together coaching staff that can totally concentrate on their strengths of what they bring to the table and their, and their ability to communicate what they bring to the table to their players. And he, he's willing and able to allow you as a coach to, you know, teach what you teach and not impose upon that. And everyone stays in their lane. And he's been able to be extremely successful in getting, getting everybody on the same page as far as understanding what part of the staff does what and what needs to be accomplished as a group. And being able to get that point across, you see a lot of coaches, you know, I look at, you know, some of the problems Doc River had with, with Chris Paul and him, his ability not to want to be coached or what have you. I think it's just a matter of, of being able to recognize as a coach what you're capable of bringing to the table. And no one did that better than Phil Jackson. And I think maybe maybe Paul, maybe uh, Popovich is the only other one that I think can compare to the ability to 
understand what's it, what it takes and to be able to manage people day in, day out to get you to a world championship. Yeah, those are two of the uh, those are two coaches that you'd also that you'd always put on your Mount Rushmore of coaches. But I'm glad yeah, you said. And, and you know, you you always have to put Red Hot back up there because when you talk about winning, I think he he set the standard, and he along with the teams that he had, and not to not to lessen the impact of what Bill Russell did during his time as a as a player coach, even. So you know, those types of things have always stuck in my mind when I'm thinking about teaching children how to play the game is making sure you allow them to know that the game is a game and that the nature of games is to have fun and how much fun can we have as professionals and adults and <laughs> knowing that we're playing a child's game. Uh, you also have to include Pat Riley, I think, in your uh, Mount Rushmore. Uh, you know, and, 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 you know, it's different coaching styles, and, and I think Riles has always been one of those up there. You know, for me, um, I just like – I like the – the different styles that I've been, you know, I've had a chance to compete against uh, patch teams and they were always ready to play and always in a position to win. And I think that as a coach, you want to be able to put your team in a position to win. And then at those times when subtle adjustments need to be made, you have to be able to make those adjustments on the fly and not have it take your team out of pocket. I really like what you said earlier. You uh, you talked about Tex Winter. Tex Winter, I think, is – undoubtedly the greatest assistant coach in NBA history. He came up with no the question. triangle offense, and I, I've actually read his book. I love it, the Triple Post Offense book. And, he, yes, and he's one of the big reasons why Phil Jackson put in the triangle offense. And, you know, and, 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 and that's another thing. When you look at Phil's ability to let the reins go, um, I played under Doug Collins, and, and Tex Winter was Doug's assistant, but Doug wanted – Doug was more of a hands-on one to, you know, have more of an impact on the offensive end. Well, when Phil came in, he he, he understood what he had in, in Tex Winter. He allowed Tex to implement the triangle in a manner in which, you know, knowing that it's a process, it took us, probably took us about a month and a half, almost two months until it started running like a machine. And that once Michael and Scotty, bought into the plan of it and understood that this is going to be able to win us basketball games, get us to the championship, and be able to win a championship because we were able to use probably 40% less offensive energy from the individual end where we were able to utilize our spacing and our ball movement and player movement within the scheme of the triangle to be able to use less energy from a Michael standpoint where now you can utilize that energy defensively and making people better around him as opposed to trying to make it happen one-on-one all the time or one-on-three. Okay, Craig. So here at the Ball Talk Pod, we try and get our fans in as uh, involved as much as possible. So we asked yeah. some listeners what they would like me to ask you. The question I chose, and this went perfectly along with what we were talking about, was – how complex did Phil Jackson make the triangle offense? This, of course, came from a basketball coach, Mr. Bobby Bowling. Well, you, could you repeat it one more time? This kind of. He said, "How complex did Phil Jackson make the triangle offense?" No, no, it wasn't. And, and see, that's the beautiful part of the system. Is it's all a matter of how it's implemented, implemented. Uh, from what, the way Tex played and me being with Tex in college, I had a chance over a four-year period to see 
how the system went through college where we got all parts of it, where, you know, the professional level, time constraints as such, where time is compressed. So we have to make more of a, of a, a conscious mindset of those principles that will work on a professional level, ball movement, spacing, being able to realize that when the ball moves, we have to get certain routes, we have to move. So it wasn't anything complicated. It's nothing really anything that you hadn't seen in basketball before. It was just getting mindset that the ball has to move. The ball cannot get stuck. And those are the things that Phil was able to, you know, explain to Michael and get Michael to buy into. And I think if Michael could buy into it, anybody can, even to this day, that I teach the triangle in high school. I, that's the only method that I know how to teach as far as knowing that it's the best way to play basketball. Those players who are big are going to get touches inside. Those players who can slash, they're going to get their slashes to the basket based on our spaces. And those players who can shoot are going to get wide-open jump shots. And the shots that you get within the context of the uh, triangle, you practice them every day. So you're getting the same shots that you get in game situations where – other systems are, are more ad lib, so you may not get the same shot a whole week within the pro range. You may not get the same shots in a week compared to where we're getting our same shots every day. So we can practice where we're getting shots from and and be really prepared that in game situations we know where we're shooting from as opposed to it being an ad lib situation. So it wasn't complicated at all. It was more so of us of players buying into the system and, and knowing that it's a winning system. Yeah, I really like the triangle offense personally because it really empowers your players because really if you're a smart basketball mind, it's basically just you read and react. So it gives Oh man, and then and that's the beautiful part of it for me and not to cut you off is that, you know, it, it, and especially, you know, I tell people it's like, Man, it's too hard to teach. I'm like, No, you can give it to you can give it to second and third graders right now and what it does is that when you go to like high school level, well, my first year in high school was last year teaching it, and you have to break down so many bad habits because people have been polluted in the game, what I call it, where the younger you start, the less pollution it is. So it's easier to get the points across from a fundamental standpoint and be able to, you know, build on those skills and understand how those skills you know, build into a great team system. And it's a great thing, man. So I would, I would tell any upcoming coach to grab Texas books, look online, get as much of the Bulls 1991 and 92 championship film as you can get, and just watch the spacing and the movement and the ball movement and, and study it because it, it's a great system. And I think right now it's one of those things, and I'm, and I'm one of the people that are banging on the door asking pro teams why you're not utilizing the system that has won so much and the bottom line is many people don't know how to implement it. And if you don't know how to implement it, you can't use it. Yes, so a lot of reporters really got on to Phil Jackson because they said don't try and, they wanted him not to try and force a triangle offense. But it's worked so much, so you'd expect a team with a floor spacer like Christoph Sporzingis and also a post-up player like Carmelo Anthony, you'd be really able to implement it. And you look around the league – and you see, like, coaches like Greg Popovich, he's kind of implemented the same system, but he's more of – he kind of spread the floor out a little bit. more, a little bit. So it's continuous no ball movement. And, and when, you look at, when you look at San Antonio, San Antonio runs the 
they run the um, the dribble weave option where they initiate with the dribble weave. Uh, uh, Golden State uses it as far as spacing and dribble weave action and ball movement and kick to the open shooters. So it's one of those things that, you know, it's just a matter of understanding what you're getting accomplished and what the system can give you. And like you said, being able, as especially on a professional level, you should be able to read and react. So it, it bothers me that people are trying to make the system, um, you know, somewhat obsolete. But when I was in New York and, and watching Derek Fisher struggle with guys just wanting to buy into it, that's the biggest part of it, man. If a player doesn't want to buy into whatever system you have, it's not going to work. And so a lot of people think that the triangle won't work when, in fact, it's just a matter of players realizing that I have to work on this skill set and be able to utilize my teammate. It's bigger than just any one player, and I think that's where the superstardom comes into the league, where I'm a superstar, so I don't have to do certain things where, hey, everybody has to play the game the way it's supposed to be played, man, and the triangle is the best way to play. Yeah, we talked, you said the Warriors like to implement it, but also the Los Angeles Lakers like to put that in. And a lot of that, I think, is because you see uh, Luke Walton came from Golden State, but also Luke Walton played under uh, Phil Jackson, and you were an assistant coach on that team. Uh, can you tell Absolutely. us what it was like as an assistant on those championship team, those Laker teams in 2009 and you 2010? Know, the, the greatest thing that I, I would say is that, you know, when you have a player like Kobe Bryant, who's a student of the game and who buys totally into the system, and then you see – you go, and then you have the direct opposite when you go to New York and you see how Carmelo, it was a struggle for him to buy into the system. You know, it's just a matter of, it was, I was, I was, I had, I tell people all the time, I had the greatest job in America being a shooting coach for the Lakers because we were able to have, we had a great group of players who understood the impact of how to play the game and what we could do and how we could go about doing it. And they bought into it wholeheartedly on a daily basis, film sessions, practice, pre-practice and all. It was a great, it was great for me to be around guys who understood this is how we're going to play. We love playing with one another. We, we know that if we play the right way, we'll win. And we were able to do that. And then and at the same time, be able to set certain standards as far as shooting was concerned. We had, some of the top, top shooting uh, percentages in the league during that period of time when we were winning. So it's a great system, man, and it's just a matter of having your superstar like a Kobe or MJ buy into it, and both of them did, and they won championships for fun. Well, one of the big things I think, I think the Lakers are going to make a big jump this year as look, they, um, what it's uh, Bill Burke said that he went to Robert, Rob Palenka's office, the general manager of the Lakers, said, this is the hardest working group of Lakers I've ever seen in the, as many years I've been here. And I think a lot of it's because Luke Walton, having played under Phil Jackson and being around basketball his life, knows how to communicate with players. And players always say he's a player's coach. And I really credit yeah. Phil, this, with, Phil with this because players really liked him. He did a lot of his coaching in practices. And I think that with the jump with this, it doesn't even matter that the Lakers don't really have a superstar because the players are going to buy in. So all the exactly. big media places think that the Lakers aren't going to do well, but they have bits and pieces. Bits and pieces. I'm sorry, uh, are going to be in the Lakers' offense this year. So, and they actually play tonight in about two hours. So I'm hoping to see some triangle put in here, and I think that the Lakers mm -hmm. are going to have a successful year because of this. 
Yeah, and I think, you know, with, with like you said, once again, Luke understands uh, how to get your coaching done in practice. And once the game starts, it's the player's game because it's a matter of you just making some subtle adjustments to, you know, at times you may have to call a timeout here or there to get them back in, in, in positions of, of seeing where their uh, advantages are. But overall, I think it's all about practice and getting the guys to realize if we go hard against each other in practice, then great things are going to happen on the court during games. Did you ever, did you ever um, um, imagine that Luke Walton would be a head coach one day? Oh yeah, Luke was always, uh, he was always a conscious player. He was always one of those players who would see things on the court and be able to talk to players who didn't see those things and be able to communicate to them what was happening and. It's, it was a great situation for him, man, I'm, and I'm happy for him. I had a chance to play with his dad, so I knew him when he was a little he's a 12-year-old, so I understood where his basketball, you know, whole pedigree came from, and he's deserving of it, man, and he, and he has a good staff. He has Brian Shaw his staff who won championships under it, so it's a great situation, man, and I look forward to them doing great things in the future. Yeah, I actually had Brian Shaw on my notes to talk about because I know you were with him when he was with the Lakers, and I thought that was a great addition to Luke Walton's staff. Uh, we've got no a, doubt about it. We've got a couple more questions for you, Craig. Uh, well, you were a player who liked to use his platform to help on global issues. NBA players like LeBron James, Dwayne Wade, and Chris Paul are players today who are using their platform in a positive way to show awareness. What do you think of these yeah. players taking a stand, and what are they doing well or not so well on this? You know, you can only do so much. So NFL even, I think, uh, you know, we're seeing that you have a platform to speak from. You only have a short period of time of that window when you're going to be so visible, maybe 15 years at the most. But even that, you know, once you get done, you still have a life left to do things. So you want to build a, you want to build a beautiful community. And I think that's the part that many people who are, you know, kind of telling players they shouldn't speak are realizing that the impact that athletes have on the community, whether you want to realize it or not, you know, young people look up to them, older people look up to them, and you just have to be able to stand on those principles that are right and stand on them, you know, forthrightly and not not beat anybody over the head with it, not try to down anybody, but just stand on the principles that, that you know to be correct. And when you see injustice, you have to stand whether it be in game or not in the game. I think, that's one of the things that has happened in, in our country is that we have kind of blind eye when it doesn't affect me personally that when it just affects somebody else, we won't say anything because it didn't happen to our home. So we have to be more human, humanistic in our, in our mindset and as far as helping people and, and changing the planet and making the world a better place for our next generation of children. Yeah, I really... I really look up to these athletes because most people just get offended by them, but everybody everybody these days seems to get offended by things. But I think that I really applaud the athletes because they're using their platform. People say, oh, these athletes aren't nothing without us, but they do. They put together a lot of awareness for things that nobody would be talking about unless they were showing their their feelings for it. So I really, exactly. I really think they're doing awesome with it. And one of the things that I tell people all the time, you know, when a player speaks up, he speaks up a lot of times from the communities where they're from and it's affecting some people that they know personally, some family members, and even to the extent that it affects some of them. 
And that when you look at, if we just stop and take a, a, the time to look at the training involved in being a professional athlete, the amount of time spent away from your family training, the amount of time spent away from having the joy that other people have and doing things, you're up running in the morning, you're lifting weights, you're shooting jumpers, you're, you're, you're doing things to improve your quality of your business. Being a lawyer or a doctor, you're just putting in times like you need help and training. Profession that's uh, that's neat, also very visible. So I would like people to think in terms of human side of things that these players put in a lot of time, so we can have something to cheer about in times when we have a uh, tragedy going, like the hurricanes and, and the wildfires that we're able to turn them to and, and take our minds away for a period of time so that and watch athletes who are blessed with God-given talent and able to come back to the community and, and lend that support to future generations. So I don't see anything wrong with standing up on righteous causes and speaking, of, speaking on behalf of those things. Something I really like to say is if a random Joe says nothing – but uh, if a random Joe says something, nobody cares. But when an NBA player speaks, it speaks volumes. So you really, I really applaud these players for it, and I think it's awesome that they're doing this. So actually people start to care, and it's all over the media, and it's just great awareness. And so, Craig, here's our final question for you. We like to, we like to ask every NBA player we have on our show, what is one crazy story you experienced in your playing careers that you'd like to share with us? One of the craziest stories, uh, well, I'm going to tell you that we were in uh, we shot against Cleveland. In game five, we were playing Cleveland, and MJ hit the shot over Elo and Larry Nash. After the game, it was probably like 20 degrees outside, or 20, so it was, it was extremely cold in Cleveland. And when I come out to the bus, the bus driver is looking under the bus, and I'm like, hey, man, what's going on? And he's like, it's a lady under the bus holding her baby to her chest. She's been under the bus since the first quarter, and she's not going to come out until she can meet Michael Jordan. <laughs> and I looked under the to this lady oh, clutching her baby. I said, you know, hurry up and get from under that. <laughs> it's going to be a problem. So come on from under there. And it was just those type of the the environment that have around that and entertainers is oftentimes crazy. And, and just that type of thing, though, the impact that Michael had on going, you know, I tell people all the time that the way he handled himself and the charisma that he had is something that all of these other players have been able to understand how to brand, even the Tiger Woods. Everyone branded off of the way Michael was branded, so... You know, he, he carries a lot of weight, and he continues to carry a lot of weight. And that's one of those instances where I told him, I said, man, people look up to you on a level that's unheard of, brother. So that type of thing made me see that people would do a lot to just get a chance to meet someone of that statue. Uh, it was funny because, as you said, uh, Jordan hit the shot over Elo and Larry Nance. I'm actually wearing my Larry Nance Jr. jersey to show uh, my pride for the Lakers or not. So. <laughs> Uh, but Craig yeah. and they said I, I was uh, I had a chance to be with Larry a couple weeks ago in Phoenix at the Hall of Fame golf party with Jake Colangelo and he said that he has a high school son 
projected to be one of the top players in the country, 6'10 point guards. So we have something else to look for from the Nance family. Yeah, I saw he committed to a college the other day, and I'm really excited about that. But, Craig, thanks again for joining us. I thought that this was an absolutely phenomenal show, and we would love to have you back on sometime. Hey, man, I appreciate you, and God bless you. You and your your listening audience, everybody be peaceful. Thank you. This is our interview with Craig Hodges on the Ball Talk Pod. Make sure you all give Craig a follow on all his Instagram, on all his social media accounts at Craig Hodges NBA. Make sure you check out our next episode and give us a like and share. Thank you.